When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. episode of audio judo i'm kyle and i'm matthew welcome we are your podcast of music discovery proud members of the pantheon podcast network your premier source for music podcasts so a little while ago audio judo had the distinct pleasure of holding an in-home concert Ooh, yeah. for independent recording artist and lead singer of envy of none maya win uh that was a fantastic experience one i will certainly never forget <laughs> uh, as the host of the show we were also able to live stream the event to her fans and ours worldwide you know all three of them uh, all three of <laughs> our fans uh her thousands and our, our three. three uh if you missed the live stream you can still watch the show uh go to any of our socials you will find the link there or you can find it in the show description for this episode Ooh, so shit now i have to remember to do that <laughs> all right well i know i put you on the spot yeah that's fine I'll, uh, make it, I'll make it happen uh there's also a way to donate to a great cause through the live stream yes. so make sure you check that out as well if you would like to donate to another great cause although not nearly as important as that one we have a Patreon account <laughs> do. through which we provide additional content not found on our regular website. So, Kyle, how would they do that? I'm going to be honest with you. If you choose to join our Patreon rather than supporting the people of Iran, uh, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take a loss for a couple of months if you guys want to support Iran. For yeah, a that's lot. okay. However, if you do want to do both. If both uh, is good. We do have three Patreon tiers. Our lowest tier is called Shout It Out Loud. It's a dollar or a euro or a pound or a rupee or whatever your local currency is per month. And for that, you will get a shout out on Instagram. Every future episode of the podcast, as long as you continue to pay. Step up from that is the front row seats tier. It is $5 a month, but for that, you get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, two-day early access to all of our full episodes, access to some bonus mini episodes we call Judo Chops, and occasional bonus bits that are unedited, that are things like unedited interviews. That's so hard to say, and I need to rewrite it. Unedited. Unedited interviews. Unedited interviews, uh, bonus bits that we cut out of episodes for time or, or because we went off on a weird tangent or whatever, and sometimes because we were a little gassy. You really want to help out the podcast you can step up to the backstage past here it is twenty dollars a month but for that you get the shout out you get the two-day early access to full episodes you get the access to the judo chops you get the bonus bits of farts and burps plus after three months at that level you get a very special present sent directly to your home and the big one a chance to co-host an episode of audio judo on the album of your choice uh, that does activate after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once but activated what? activated it is pretty cool uh, oh yeah you know you can you can pick a great album you can pick a terrible album you can make us revisit an album we already did that you don't agree with Ooh, that's intriguing i thought about that the other day and i was like you know somebody should do that they should sign up for the backstage pass here and be like, I'm picking an album you guys hated oh. that I love and make us revisit it. Don't pick Oasis. Don't pick Oasis. Don't pick Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be great. Uh, but this week, Kyle goes back to the daunting list of the top 100 albums of all time yep. for a doozy of a record filled with world beat and at least one recognizable song. Oh, at least one. Talking Heads Remain in Light. Right. The decadent decade of the 80s. Yeah. The 1980 album. And this, this album definitely leads us right into the 80s. It has the sounds of the 80s. It has the feel of the 80s. Yeah. And even the, the hit song from this, 
I feel like is a perfect song to describe the 1980s. Pretty much. We'll get to that in a few minutes, though. Regularly considered one of the greatest records of the decade, Mm -hmm. and for some of all time. Typically regarded as their uh, magnum opus, Mm -hmm. as it were. Uh, I feel like that term gets thrown around pretty loosely nowadays, but whatever. Very innovative record. One of the first records ever to utilize looping grooves for a lot of the songs. Um, Now, Kyle, a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned uh, that you had kind of run out of albums that you really had an emotional attachment to. Yes. And you were just kind of randomizing it now. Is that accurate Accurate for this record? Yes. Okay. I'm familiar with Talking Heads just from, you know, their history. And that happens to be one of the eras of music that I enjoy listening to. Okay. This was not an album that I was intimately familiar with before doing this episode. So I'd listened to it before. I, I recognize all the songs on here, but it's not something where I sat down and actually like, oh, what are these lyrics actually saying? And, you know, what's the history behind this album? And, you know, what's the history behind Talking Heads? And But uh, here, the history behind Talking Heads, should we go over that? Sure. So Talking Heads, no the, by the way, I know a lot yeah, of people just talking say the heads. Talking Heads. It's not, it's just Talking head, Heads. Uh, they were formed in New York in 1975. In 1973, however, Rhode Island's School of Design students David Byrne and Chris Franz formed a band called The Artistics. Fellow student and France's girlfriend, Tina uh, Weymouth, provided transportation, meaning she drove those two broke boys around all the time and probably they never paid for gas. Would be my guess. I, yes, I'm guessing that. The Artistics dissolved a year later and the three of them moved to New York City. Uh, for a time, they were sharing a loft there uh, because obviously it's real expensive to live in New York City. Chris encouraged Tina to learn to play the bass and as she did so, the three kind of came together and formed a band. David was a little more picky. He had Tina audition three times before agreeing to let her join the band. Such a dick move. Right? <laughs> I know she's your girlfriend, and I know you told her to learn to play the bass, and, and I know that I've heard her play it thousands of times. Exactly. I want to have a formal audition. So Obviously, uh, I've been hearing her practice for months living in the same loft <laughs> together. But you know what? Just sit down and just Let's do something a little more formal. For I'm going to have a notepad. <laughs> <laughs> so they played their first gig uh, as Talking Heads, opening for the Ramones at CBGB on June 5th, 1975. Like what kind of slouch-ass first gig is that? Right? Your opening first the gig Ramones. is the Ramones at CBGB. What? That's, That's crazy. The right? now acclaimed and iconic CBGB. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> Some band called the Ramones. Who's ever heard of them? Uh, did, you see, did you see where they got their name from? Yeah. Talking Heads? Yeah. yeah, but go ahead. They stole it from an issue of TV Guide, using a term to explain uh, a person on TV with all content and no action. Yeah. So just the- Which um, really fit. Uh, it does fit. Uh, in late 1975, they recorded a demo for CBS, uh, but CBS passed on that. Instead, the band signed to Sire Records in November 1976. Uh, their first single was called Love Right arrow building on fire, I guess is how you would pronounce it. Uh, yeah. Love, uh, love building on fire. Yeah. I think it's just called love building, <laughs> love on, building fire. on fire. All right. Uh, released in February, 1976, uh, in March of 76, they added Jerry Harrison on keyboards, guitar and backing vocals. So that they, Oh, but love building on fire. That track was produced by Anthony Bongiovi, the cousin of one John oh, Bongiovi, who may or that. may not have had a successful rock band named after him a few years later. Hmm. I'll have to look that up. I never heard of him before. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anywho, their first full album, uh, Talking Heads 77, released on September 16, 1977, what a surprise, received critical acclaim across the board and spawned the minor hit Psycho Killer, which went to number 92 on the Billboard Hot 100. Yep. Great critical acclaim. Yeah. Album itself got to number 97 on the charts, currently sits at number 290 on uh, the Rolling Stone Top 500 of Albums of All Time. Yeah. Even our beloved Robert Christigau loved this record and mm-hmm. said, in his ridiculously flowery and unnecessarily verbose critique, he said, these are spoiled kids, but without the callowness or adolescent misogyny. Like, yes, they are wimps, but without vagueness or cheap <clears throat> romanticism. Every tinkling harmony is righted with a screech. Every self-help homily contextualized dramatically, so that in the end, the record proves not only that the detachment of craft can coexist with a frightening intensity of feeling, something most artists know, but that the most inarticulate rage can be rationalized. Mm, Okay, guy, you like them. We get it. That just made me tired listening to you read that. Made me tired to read it. Do you think at this point, if we took Robert Christigau's thesaurus away, do you think he's used it so much he has it memorized by now? Good. Album good. Album good. (laughs) Toad Johnson-like album, yay. (laughs) And no, for everybody listening out there, 
I will not lay off this guy. No, no reason to. He's no. reviewed so many things. He's yeah. <laughs> anyways. Next, the same year, uh, Chris and Tina got married. Uh, 1977. Uh, their next album, more songs about buildings and food, uh, was the band's first collaboration with Brian Eno as their producer. Eno, if you aren't familiar, has a long history of working with experimental or out there bands, including the likes of David Bowie, Roxy Music, John Cale, and Robert Fripp, and Genesis, and Genesis, and others, and so many more. Very unique avant-garde style seemed to work very well well with art school students such as these. Mm-hmm. He even had a song on one of his albums prior to working with them called King's Lead Hat, Yes, which is an anagram for Talking, Talking Heads. Heads. So uh, Eno's style and direction led the band to begin exploring a much more diverse sound than they had on their first couple of albums. Mm-hmm. He also introduced the bands to the sounds of uh, Fila Kuti and Parliament Funkadelic and a lot more world music. This album also included the Talking Heads' first Billboard Top 30 hit in their cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River. Which is a fantastic cover. It is. album eventually went gold, received great critical acclaim again, sits at 364 on that Rolling Stone list because mm-hmm. the Rolling Stone magazine loves the Talking Heads. They do. With good reason. And but- this recording also established a working relationship between the band and the city of Nassau, Bahamas, mm-hmm. where they would record this one and the album that we're going to eventually yeah. cover today. Uh, but before it- they got there, oh. they had one more album to record. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say the collaboration continued with their next album, Fear of Music, which was a post-punk funk mixture that spawned the single Life During Wartime. Which is a great song. It's also fun to say post-punk funk mixture. Uh, yeah, they and they entered the studio by themselves, determined to push themselves in a different direction, but after a few weeks, they were not satisfied. So they made the decision to record the next record in Francis and Weymouth's loft in New York City. Mm-hmm. So they spent two days running cables out their window to a recording van parked on the street. Once again, called in Brian Eno, like you said, recorded the basic tracks for the album. Fear of Music was released in August 79 and once again appeared on all of the critical lists. <laughs> uh, buoyed by the single Life in Wartime, the album would go to would go gold, reach number 21 on the Billboard Top 100, and it also launched the very popular phrase, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, <laughs> this ain't no fooling around. It's, um, it's interesting to me that all of their albums critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. All the critics love them. None of them, as far as I can tell, have gone above a gold. Really? Yeah. Very, oh, that's true. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. That the sales numbers do not reflect, like the critics are all like, this is amazing. You should buy this album. And people are like, eh. <laughs> Man. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Anyways. So a band's fourth studio album, Remain Light, the one we're going to talk about today, was another collaboration with Brian Eno, mm-hmm. but it'll be the band's last collaboration. Yes. Uh, recorded in July and August 1980 and released on October 8th, 1980. You, like you were saying, it was recorded between Nassau and the Bahamas. Yeah, the and, band the uh, band actually, in New York City. The band actually took some time off after the tour in support of Fear of Music to pursue personal interests. David Byrne uh, worked on a solo record with Brian Eno. Jerry Harrison produced an album for our artist Nona Hendrix. And Weymouth in France were very, very strongly considering leaving the band at this point because of Byrne's controlling nature, yeah. something we have seen before. And France didn't want to leave the band. So the couple decided to take a vacation to the Caribbean to contemplate their future. Uh, And while they were down there, they began to get involved in some voodoo practices. They started practicing native percussion and hanging out with reggae artists and stuff. And they were so influenced by the region that they ended up renting the apartment above the studio in Nassau, where they recorded their second album and invited the rest of the band to join them down Hmm. there. While they were there, they confronted David Byrne about his controlling nature and the fact that they felt he was doing all of the writing and they weren't participating as a quartet. They were basically... uh, sick of being his backup band and wanted him to put his ego aside, quote, in the spirit of mutual cooperation. Hmm. So instead of writing music to Burns' lyrics, they started doing instrumental jams based on rhythm in which parts could be mined and loops were developed. And they eventually began recording the album that uh, we're talking about, Remain in Light. It was originally titled Melody Attack. And to build on what you were just talking about, Brian Eno, who was producing it, was convinced that the album needed to dispel that same idea that the band was just a vehicle for songwriter and frontman David Byrne. So he pushed for the incorporation of African polyrhythms, funk sounds, electronic instrumentation, and the heavy use of looping musical pieces as well. So it was coming at David Byrne from both sides, from the production side and from the rest of the band. They were both saying, we need to do these different things. We need to make this work. We need to work as a cohesive unit. Right. It's not about you anymore. And because of that, Byrne began to struggle with 
with uh, writer's block. He was really nervous about writing this album. He adapted some new writing techniques inspired by academic literature on the way that music was created and written in Africa. And he also adopted a new lyrical style that was inspired by early rap singers. Definitely. Which you can really hear in some of these songs. When this album was released, it was once again, highly acclaimed by lots of critics. Ken Tucker from Rolling Stone felt it was a brave and absorbing attempt to locate a common ground in the early 1980s, divergent and often hostile musical genres. So he liked it. He liked it. Robert Christigal said the record was one, quote, in which David Byrne conquers his fear of music in a visionary Afro-funk synthesis, clear-eyed, detached, almost mystically optimistic. <laughs> there was a comment in there that I missed that made it a little bit more sensical, but not Not much. really. The critical uh, acclaim would continue. Remain in Light was named the best album of 1980 by Sounds Magazine. The New York Times included it in their list of 10 best records of 1980. Uh, those are not numbered, so it was just on the list. Uh, in 1989, Rolling Stone named it the fourth best album of the 1980s. It's number 11 on NME's list of the greatest albums of the 1980s and number 68 on their list of the greatest albums of all time. I'm not going to continue with the, the critical acclaim stuff because there are hundreds and hundreds right. of lists and every critic has this somewhere on their list. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it's a tremendous record that's rippled through all the ages of rock and roll since its release because it's with its sound, with its innovation being heard in just about every genre because loops and beats and unconventional song structures have found their place in a multitude of places and many of them can be traced back to this record yeah. and how it was utilized. So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, influential. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the artwork? What? Yeah, let's do it. I was about to say maybe even as influential as the music is the artwork on this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the cover was designed by Tina and Chris with the help of, of a guy named Walter Bender from the MIT Architecture Machine or ArcMac group which was the precursor to the MIT Media Lab. Inspired by the name Melody Attack, they created a collage of red warplanes flying in formation over the Himalayas. The planes are an artistic depiction of the Grumman Avenger planes in honor of Weymouth's father, Ralph Weymouth, who was a U.S. Navy admiral. The idea for the back cover included simple portraits of the band members, but Tina worked with Bender's colleague, Scott Fisher, on computer renditions of each of the people. Uh, this took forever because at the time, computer power was super limited, and the computer they were working on was a server that took up several rooms, and they had to schedule time to be able to render on it. And graphics rendering was so intense that it took up the whole system. So they often would render things overnight and on weekends and then come back and find out that they had screwed something up in the programming and they had just wasted 12 hours of compute time. Just to put a bunch of red scribbles on someone's face? Yeah. Today, this is literally 30 seconds in Photoshop. I know. In 1980, this was weeks and weeks of work. Cover is weird, man. It is. It looks like it looks like uh, four pictures of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Uh, they with actually, mask they on. Originally considered superimposing Brian Eno's face on top of all four portraits. This giant ego couldn't handle exactly. that. Exactly. It was intentionally to insinuate his ego, uh, but they decided against it. <laughs> they also employed a guy named Tibor Kalman, who did the graphic design and the liner notes. He His company is called M & Co. Okay. They've done a lot of album covers and things over the years. Tibor wanted to use some very unconventional materials for the sleeve, like sandpaper and velour, so that it would be very textual. <laughs> However, Tina vetoed that idea. And during that same design process, the band kind of realized that the name Melody Attack was too flippant for this album, yeah. so they switched it to Remain in Light. Uh, the image of the warplanes that was originally intended to be the front cover was moved to the back, and the image of the, the computer-generated faces was moved to the front. The Hannibal Lecter faces moved The Hannibal Lecter faces. Yeah. <laughs> the cover of the album, or the liner notes of the album, also contained a, a huge dispute, one that continued yes. to uh, deepen the already existing animosity between the band members. Uh, originally, all songs were to be credited to all of the members of the band. But when the album was released, the credits read, all songs written by David Byrne and Brian Eno, mm. except All Houses in Motion and The Overload, written by David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Jerry Harrison, completely leaving out Weymouth and France, the two who had complained the most about the lack of unity. Yeah. A nice move, Byrne. Later editions of the record corrected the mistake, uh, but the seeds had been sown and Weymouth and France uh, have been very burned by that dispute. Uh-huh. <laughs> See what you did there. Did you? Yeah. You like it? I like it. So uh, is that all you have about artwork? That's pretty much it. So yeah. like I said, I don't, I haven't said yet. I don't have a lot of personal history uh, with this band or this record outside of uh, the obvious, the once in a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, the fact that once in a lifetime is a great song and a great weird video and 
and was played constantly on yeah. MTV in the early years was really my only exposure to this record at all. Uh, their concert video, Stop Making Sense, helped to kind of illuminate a little bit more of it later on. But it wasn't until the, like, the late 80s that I started to listen to their whole catalog. And even then, their later work appealed to me at that point. Uh, I was a big fan of their last album, Naked, mm. that had uh, nothing but flowers on it, yeah. which I think is a great, great song. So I don't have a lot of personal history. Uh, so this will be fun. Uh, I already learned a lot just in the research because yeah. uh, I had no idea that Brian Eno was actually involved in this band at all. And <laughs> now some of their sound makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, right. So yeah. Should we take a quick break? We'll come back and do a track by track? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Under punches, the heat goes on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is a song directed straight at oppression, specifically oppression that was happening in South Africa under the apartheid regime. It starts out with the voice of someone in authority speaking down to their subordinates. Then it switches with the chorus to the voice of the people asking for freedom. Then back to the oppressor, only this time they're a little lighter. They've lost some power. Then back and forth and back and forth throughout the whole song. Yeah, that pretty much describes it. <laughs> right? It's such a great groove, though, to start. It is. If you've been wondering what we've been talking about up to this point about Afro rhythms and uh and loops and things like that this is it in a nutshell yeah and the baseline here absolutely pulls this song through it's it's wonderful it sounds a little bit like this solo there performed by Adrian Ballou. It sounds like a bunch of weird electronic noise, mm. but it's it actually has some structure if you pay attention to it. Adrian would later tour with the Talking Heads and then go on to join the band King Crimson. Uh, before this, he'd been playing with Bowie and Frank Zappa, yeah. known so, for his so no slouch. squeaks and squeals, strange sounds, lots of feedback, but fantastically innovative. Yeah. And also, what I read that this song was about was about government paranoia. Mm. Allegedly, it's written about John Dean. Oh. Uh, for all of you out there too young to know, John Dean was one of Nixon's attorneys, that's President Nixon's attorneys, who ended up being mostly responsible for taking Nixon down as he revealed in his testimony the presence of the tapes in the Watergate scandal. Oh. He testified for days to the Watergate committee, implicating himself for which he was convicted, served time, and then was disbarred and testified against Nixon and others. And the lyrical pattern devised by Byrne on this song is supposed to replicate the stunted straight speech that Dean oh, used during his testimony. So Dean is currently a lecturer huh. and a political pundit. Hmm. Talk about failing upwards. <laughs> right? Well, like you said, the song itself, besides the loops and things, is typically weird for talking yeah. heads. The rhythms and guitar re repetition is intoxicating, almost meditative to some degree. And that ride out is about three minutes long, more than half the running yeah. time of the song. And the repetition of the line and the heat goes on, punctuated by a Burns kind of weird, almost paranoid voice, drives the song very effectively. Yeah. A lot of people have suggested that a lot of songs on this album can be about a person losing their mind. Mm -hmm. And people have questioned whether that meant David Byrne thought he was losing his mind, whether he thought people around him were losing his mind, whether he thought society was losing its mind. There's a lot of layers to most everything on this album that you, if you want to dig into it, you absolutely can. I mean, there's... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, you can. I had to I had to intentionally limit how much research I did on, on all of these songs because every time I would start going down a rabbit hole, I'd have like 12 websites open. And I'm like, I don't have time to read 12 10-page articles about the meaning of this song. You don't? No, I don't. Uh. <laughs> I'm never 
narrow it down to one and read that one and then we'll move on to the next one. Yeah. It's very well written and well thought out, even though supposedly- Even if it isn't. Even if it isn't. Because yeah. a lot of it is supposedly freeform. Yes. They just started playing, like we were saying earlier, they started playing the rhythm, they started playing the song, and then David Byrne would just start kind of freeform rapping, I guess is what you'd call it, over the top of it with lyrics and they would record it and then go back and write it down afterwards. Right. Yeah. This song was named one of the best songs between 1980 and 82, which hmm. is a weird list title. Yeah. <laughs> From the two-year period between 1980 and 1982. I saw that on, on something and I'm like, I got to write that down because that doesn't make any sense, but whatever. <laughs> Did something huge come out in 1983 that would have like knocked it off the list? So Total Eclipse of the Heart. Betty Davis eyes. Yeah, maybe. A thriller. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Maybe thriller knocked it off the list. Could be. Cross-eyed and painless. Easy to see why this album is as revered as it is. Yeah. Because it is jamming a lot of stuff into these songs. Funk elements are there, but there's also so much other stuff. The cowbell loops, the congas, those staccato guitar parts, and electronic blips all contribute to this mishmash that if you were to describe it to somebody, probably would not sound like it worked. But it absolutely does. Yeah. And long before the term alternative facts entered our everyday use, thanks for that, <laughs> Kellyanne Conway, they explored the idea of that in this song. The song is more or less about a guy losing his mind, like you said, yeah. and he can't tell what facts are real and which ones are being constructed by his head. The lyrics are, facts are simple and facts are straight. Facts are lazy and facts are late. Facts all come with points of view. Facts don't do what I want them to. According to Chris France, David was struggling with the bridge section that starts with that facts are simple line. Uh, he needed to get a lot of words in short space, so France suggested he he tried rapping them, which was a completely novel idea at the time. Yeah. Byrne gave it a try and nailed it on his very first take. Yeah, he gave him a copy of The Breaks by Curtis Blow yeah. that he hadn't heard yet and kind of used that as his inspiration. And the guitar solo is once again played by Adrian Ballou. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have seen the video for this song, none of the members of the band appear in it. The director of the video and one other video on this record is legendary choreographer and one-hit wonder Tony Basil. She, of course, performed Mickey, one of the earliest and very successful successful music videos. So she used a bunch of street dancers in this video who were popping and locking, including oh. one very famous <laughs> street dancer. I saw this. The Skeeter Rabbit Nichols. And if you watch the video very closely, you will see him doing a dance that would become very popular two years later. The Moonwalk. Mm -hmm. Two full years before Michael Jackson made it famous and most likely had people convinced that he invented it. There is Skeeter Rabbit doing the moonwalk <laughs> in a fucking Talking Heads video. So that's crazy. I wish I had been more aware of this stuff when I was little because the connections are astounding. Like yeah. all these little itty bitty connections that you're like, no way. Wait a minute. That wasn't and go, happening. And you go back and look and you're like, oh yeah. It's yeah. like seeing like Wesley Snipes or something in a in the Beat It video or, or the... Unless... Like, is that Wesley Snipes? These are all planted alternative facts. Ooh. And all of history is actually fake. <laughs> Boom! Cross-eyed and painless sounds a little bit like this. This is Talking Heads' highest charting dance single at number 20 on the U.S. dance charts. It was released as a promotional single before the album came out. It went to number 20 on the dance chart. I can see myself getting down at like Studio 54 to this right? song. Mm -hmm. It's coked out of your mind. <laughs> I, just, I just danced that song for 17 hours in a row. Another song that's got a lot of uh, interesting loops in it. Cowbell loops, congas, bells, staccato guitar rhythms on a loop, and a bunch of electronic bleeps and blips and bloops. 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 Bleeps. The beeps, the creeps, and the sweeps. The what, the what, and the what? The beeps, the creeps, and the sweeps. I can't do any of the noises. So for being the second song on this album, it's like, oh, you've already established two great, interesting, unique sounds. Where's the rest of this album going to go? Mm -hmm. The third song on here, The Great Curve. So I feel like this album is one of the earliest precursors to trance music. Oh, I could absolutely see that. The beats and the way that it, the song is constructed, it's it's hypnotic. And it's a lot like trance music because it's long and just keeps winding and winding and winding. It doesn't really ever get anywhere. This track is almost six and a half minutes long and closes out the first side of the record. It's yeah. only track three. <laughs> and the rhythm doesn't really change at any point during the whole song. It's And it's also one of the lesser known tracks on the record. 
The lyrics are super cryptic. The choruses are super complex with kind of voices darting in and out with multiple patterns and multiple tracks. It's really intricate. Yeah. But a lot of that comes as just noise and it's just stuff bouncing around. Yeah, it definitely. One of the things I thought was really, really interesting about this is there's still a lot of debate about what the great curve might be. A lot of people think it's the curves of a woman. A lot of people think it's the curves of a goddess. A lot of people think it might be the curve of the world or the curve of space time. Who the hell knows? But it's a really fast paced, interesting song. And like you were saying, the closeout to it is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Uh, it has these complex African polyrhythms that build and build and build over the top of one another to create this sort of crazy full noise that still allows you to pick out single pieces, but it's incredibly layered and complex. heavy guitar solo that absolutely rips into the song right there in the middle. Yeah. The first few times I listened to that, I was like, God, why is that there? And then you listen to it a few more times and you're like, okay, yeah, I kind of get it. It breaks up the song. The rhythm is still going, but that guitar solo just rips into it and completely changes the direction for a little bit. And then it comes back. It's very interesting. The one thing I could not figure out is who is playing that guitar? Is it David? Is it Jerry? Is it Andrew? Hard who, to who say. There's there's a lot of great rhythm guitarists in this band. Yeah. Or two. Somebody out there for sure knows though, please let us know. Is it not Adrian Ballou? Yeah. I'm sorry. I think I called him Andrew. Adrian, excuse me. I don't know who Uh, it is. Please let us know though, if you do. And maybe, maybe it's a mystery. Maybe nobody knows. Ooh, nobody knows. Nobody knows. You want to do it? You want to do the hit once in a lifetime? Once in a lifetime? Hit from this album. Lots of people are going to recognize this song. It actually ended up on the disco top 100 at number 20 and went to number 14 on the UK charts. It's pretty much the defining song in in their catalog. Yeah. It is most likely the song that people will mention when asked about Talking Heads. A lot of that has to do with the music video, which we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. But just as much, I think, about the song itself. Like most of the songs on the record, it was born out of uh, instrumental jams that Brian Eno would record, and then he would isolate the very best parts, and then the band would learn that part and play it over and over and over again like a human loop. Yeah. Uh, Like a human sampler. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. That's what David Byrne called them was human samplers. And as many times... Times as I've listened to the song over the years, which, like a lot of people, is hundreds of times, I never really listened as intentionally as I did for this. And what I noticed is that when you get to the very popular Same As It Ever Was section of the song, there is a very distorted guitar track that is so, so great mm-hmm. that you don't hear because you're paying attention to the, you know, Same As It Ever Was. And, same As It Ever Was. And you're not hearing that sound, which is, it's just a terrific, terrific line. So uh, what uh, Byrne wanted to style his vocals on this song as a radio evangelist. In fact, he would improvise a lot of his lines and attempt to deliver them like a preacher, which is how you arrive at that stilted sound that still has gravity to it. It's effective and weird. That call and response style. Yes. Uh, It was released at single, like you said, but it stalled at number 103. But there are plenty of artists who name this song as one of the best they've ever heard. Yeah. There are a lot of people too that call this the defining song of the 1980s because it absolutely captures that feeling that started to permeate society, at least Western society in the 1980s of being alienated, even though you're doing the same things you do every day and that you have done for years every day. And that that monotonous repetition of I get up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I eat dinner, I go to bed. I get up in the morning, I go to work, I come home, I eat dinner, I go to bed. That monotonous repetition, suddenly something happens. And even though you're doing the same things over and over and over again, you're now alienated from it. You're seeing it from an outside perspective and you're like, how did I get here? What am I doing? Ah, yes. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Well, it's basically be uh, like being on autopilot for yeah, exactly for yeah. a long time. Yeah, and suddenly waking up, especially with like parents, you don't have time to really pay attention to the stuff going on. You're so deep involved yeah. when the kids are small, and all of a sudden you go on from 2001, 2004, and you're like, "What the hell just happened? I just missed three years." Because it's just it's just a, a routine yeah. that you're like, oh, the "Sun comes up, I do this, I do all these other things. Sun goes down, I go to bed. Sun goes up, and you're not you're not aware." Yeah. Find me. 
automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, Another one of the tropes that I know that we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. This song was almost abandoned. Brian Eno didn't like it. And according to Jerry Harrison, quote, because there were so few chord changes and everything was in a sort of trance-like state, it became harder to write defined choruses for this song. David Byrne, however, had faith in this song and felt he could write lyrics for it. He eventually improvised the lines like we were talking about in a call and response style. And Jerry developed this bubbly synthesizer noise and added the Hammond organ climax, which was taken directly from the Velvet Underground's What Goes On. Mm. I mean, can you imagine abandoning this song? Mm. <laughs> that would have been sad. Yeah, let's not put this on there and then i mean if that's not on there does anybody even recognize this album no i don't i mean maybe maybe but but not it wouldn't be as regarded but one of the things that really drove this song into everybody's consciousness and is probably the reason why everybody recognizes at least our age recognizes it Mm -hmm. today is the music video yes Video is one of the first to play on MTV, premiering on the day the channel premiered, August 1st, 1981. Video featured uh, blue screen effects, burn sweating and doing spastic moves all over the place. <laughs> it was weird and awesome. Uh, according to Tony Basil, the director, uh, she said, David kind of choreographed himself. I set up the camera, put him in front of it and asked him to absorb those ideas. Then I left the room so he could be alone with himself. I came back, looked at the videotape and we chose physical moves that worked with the music. I just helped to stop stylize his moves a little bit. To emphasize Byrne's jerky movements, Basil used an old-fashioned zoom lens. Uh, The video was made on a very low budget. Basil described it about as low-tech as you could get and still be broadcastable. Yeah, what, what she was talking about there that she left him alone with was to watch footage of religious rituals from around the world, including footage of evangelicals, uh, African tribes, Japanese sex, and people in trances, which when you That's watch the music S-E-C-T-S, video- S-E-C-T-S, sex. Sex, yes. Not people in sex. Not Japanese sex. No. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, like you said, it was made on just an absolute shoestring budget. And at the time, it was high tech. It really was. Yeah. And you look at it now and you're like, that's ridiculous. I can do that on my phone in my living room. Yeah, easy. But at the time, that was a lot of technology to make it happen. And it's it's iconic now. It is iconic. Rolling Stone has it listed as number 27 on the top 500 songs of all time. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame chose it as a song that helped shape rock and roll. Uh, it's been covered by a lot of artists, most yeah. importantly by Kermit the Frog. Um, and <laughs> you it's, may find uh, yourself. It's been in a ton of movies. It's been in a ton of shows. There's another recognizable name that plays on the song playing percussion Robert Palmer mm. and he is simply irresistible on this song <laughs> houses in motion yeah what the hell is this song about? I don't know. <laughs> I said that. I said, what, what exactly this song is about? I'd like to know. Yeah. David Byrne has this fascination with buildings and where people live. It's a theme that runs throughout all of his songs, all of his albums, a bunch of his song titles. Oh, burning down the house. Burning down the house. Love, building on fire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, all oh, throughout. Oh, an album, more, bu- more, about, more songs about buildings and, and food. food. Yeah. He has a fascination with it, and it's maybe an unhealthy fascination. It's weird. It's, it's second single release from the record didn't mm-hmm. chart it's strangely brass heavy yes for this record uh, john hassel on bra- on uh, uh, different brass instruments he was another frequent brian eno collaborator uh, he's a composer who came up with the concept of fourth world music just okay. something i had never heard of before but it's described as a unified primitive slash slash futurist sound sure enough uh, okay yeah, sounds oh, great okay uh houses in motion sounds a little bit like this in fact it sounds exactly like this mostly like this <laughs> sounds mostly like this Too much. 
but not too much. Ma, 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 ma. The whole song is oddly kind of dissonant. Yeah. And I honestly shouldn't be that surprised about the dissonance because of the presence of Brian Eno. There's going to be that element. Yeah. You know, you get to, into the anosification zone. Ooh. Well, it's it's actually uh, on the back of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, a uh, record by Genesis. Mm-hmm. It says uh, track five, anosification by Brian Eno <laughs> and Peter Gabriel. So, And it's just like general weirdness <laughs> that they just tack on to songs and it's it's... It's weird. It's strange. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a, a, one of the weirder songs. It uses that call and response style lyric again. Yeah. I, I like it, though. I like it a lot. It's definitely... I have no idea what it's about, though. Yeah, who does? <laughs> Some Somebody out there does, but I couldn't figure it out. So, uh, scene and not seen. Yeah, so while Once in a Lifetime is the most widely known track on this record, this, to me, is the song that really defined what the Talking Heads were at that moment. Ooh, okay. Uh, This is the blend of Brian Eno and David Byrne at its zenith, because it's the whole song is a spoken word poem set to a background of loops and noise that don't really amount to a melody ever. Yeah. The lyrics are basically a metaphor about a man insecure enough about his identity to reshape it based on those people he sees in popular culture, and his, perhaps correct opinion, that that's perfectly normal to yeah. do. It's a it's a very interesting song. I'm sure you have a piece of it because that spoken word part is what carries the whole song. Oh, yeah. That's that he, section. Yeah, here's a clip. He thought that some of these faces might be right for him and that through the years, by keeping an ideal facial structure fixed in his mind or somewhere in the back of his mind, that he might, by force of will, Caused his face to approach those of his ideal. The change would be very subtle. I mean, there's definitely there's there's a, a string running through it all all the music, but it's all over the place. It is all over the place. And then to just have that spoken word poem going over the top of the whole thing, it is. I would totally agree with you. I never thought about it until you said it, but I would 100 percent agree with you that this is Talking Heads. Yeah, at this the, this could be at this time at that this moment, could be a, yeah. de- a definition of oh, you want to know what they sound like? Here you go. Yep, that's what Talking Heads sounds like. Yeah, like a lot of songs on the record, it kind of ends up focusing on the bass loop, mm-hmm. uh, the bass played by Tina Weymouth, as we mentioned, mem- member of the band from the very beginning. Had to try out three times. Yeah. <laughs> Besides this band, she also had a side project with her husband, drummer Chris France, uh, and two of her siblings called the Tom Tom Club that had uh, one popular song called Genius of Love Ooh. back in the 80s. Uh, and of course, she comes from one of those families. So one of her sisters, who is part of the Tom Tom Club, is also an architect, and she designed the Salvador Dali Museum, and her niece is an editor for the Washington Post. Some families just have it, yeah. and some don't. How big of a mustache did they put on the front of the Salvador Dali Museum? I hope it's a big one. It's probably like 12 feet. Oh, sweet. And okay. curls. That's, that's the top. Uh, and also appearing on the song is Nona Hendrix mm. as background. Uh, she is one of the uh, one third of the group La Belle, which a few years before this had recorded Lady Marmalade. <laughs> the real Lady Marmalade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, listening wind. Listening wind. Uh, so if there's a song in their canon that courts controversy, oh my god, this is the song. This is straight up a song about American imperialism and how it spawns terrorism throughout the world. <laughs> I mean, just to say it bluntly, uh-huh. uh huh. Literally, Mojik, the main character uh, in this song, is, his village has been invaded by Americans. He sees them in their big houses. He sees them wrecking the entire village. He bides his time and remembers the past when the village was a nice, peaceful place. While well, he builds a bomb to drive the Americans out. Mm-hmm. Talks of him holding a package. In his quivering hands and waiting for the wind to come, that wind being the explosions from the bombs that he's planted. Uh, Later in the song, he speaks of buying his equipment in the marketplace and planting his devices in the free market zone. It's very visceral and coupled with uh, Burns' very uncomfortable delivery, it's extremely effective. Um, David Burns said this of the song. He said, I don't know if I could get away with performing this live anymore. I understand why America is not universally loved. That's been obvious to me for years and years, but it's not obvious to a lot of Americans. Their immediate reaction action is they love us. They're just jealous. They just want McDonald's. While that is a very callous and generalized approach to Americans, I would say he's not totally wrong, <laughs> especially now and with the fervent and sometimes misplaced patriotism. It, it, it's not wrong, but he couldn't sing it now. No, I I would totally <laughs> agree with that. He'd be, he'd be murdered. <laughs> right? This, this is not a song that I knew before doing the research, but I really, really like it, if not more for the effectiveness of the lyrics than the looping and the squealing. 
Yeah. I knew this song only because uh, shortly after the invasion of Iraq uh, in, what was that, 2000, late 2001, early 2002, a group of people that I went to high school with who were not quite goth, but very close to that, started using this as a song to protest the war. And they would oh. actively listen to it over and over and over again saying, you know, hey, this is, a, it's more of our imperialist bullshit. We need to not do this. Mm. And then, I'm sorry, the Afghanistan invasion, excuse me. Okay. And then when we went into Iraq later on, it escalated a little bit and they would play it in the hall on a CD player until they got shut down. And then they would play it in their car out in front of the school every day when we were coming to school and leaving for the day. And no test. I, it was one of those songs that I recognized it from that. I had never listened to the lyrics deeply. I had never really put two and two together until suddenly I was like, oh, yeah, this was obviously somebody who knew Talking Heads and probably Brian Eno and started to be like, hey, this song is talking about exactly what's about to happen and exactly what is happening right now. Let's use it. Uh, it sounds a little bit like this. interesting song acoustic uh, like from a sound standpoint like you were saying there's a lot of little noises and things mm -hmm. they also use this really overdriven guitar noise over and over that they use that quite a bit yeah yeah it's a very like they use it very loudly in this song a couple of times and it's very jarring it kind of pulls you out for just a second uh but i think it's done very effectively to to break up the song i would agree with that the overload Willie. Last track on the record. Total downer. Very interesting. <laughs> so what does this song sound like to you, Kyle? Because it's, it's this long, slow, driving, droning noise. To it me, sounds almost like a chant to me. Sounds almost exactly like Joy Division. Ooh. So we covered them about a year ago. Yeah. Well, it turns out that this was the Talking Heads trying to make a song that sounded exactly like Joy Division. Really? The catch is that none of the band had ever heard a Joy Division song <laughs> before they wrote this. They read a bunch of press about the band when they were recording this album, and they attempted to recreate the sound based on what they read in the papers. I'd say it's pretty really? spot on. They did not listen to it until I, after they recorded the song. I completely missed that uh, fact. Yeah. Like, that's fascinating. It's very dirgy, and Byrne delivered it with his usual quirkiness and made it kind of disconnected. Yeah. Very Ian Curtis-like. That it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting huh. to listen to that song knowing that. And I'm like, oh my God. I, I kind of like the message of this song too. It's very much about that same sort of message that's spread throughout this album of being alienated by the present because it talks about how mankind has placed their beliefs in science. And it's given us all, you know, everything modern is based on that. And as a result, we've sort of done away with faith and we've done away with religion and we've done away with nature. But now what happens when we go too far and we need to get back to that and we can't anymore? Right. Mm. Uh, it sounds like this.
So that's that's the whole droning out of this song. And I realize it's a little bit long of a clip, but uh, I love the the slow. I'm a sucker for slow fade outs. I don't know what it is. It's weird. Right? I know. Weird thing to be a sucker for. Huh? Sucker. Sucker. But it's it's definitely now that you say that it's a Joy Division song yeah. without them ever having heard Joy Division. I'm like, oh, yeah. Now I 100% you hear that. You can totally movie. hear it. Yeah. And that. Uh, that's Remain in Light. Yeah. By Talking Head. I don't know that I'm going to listen to this album on repeat a lot. Yeah. But I completely understand its influence throughout the years. I mean, it's uh, definitely innovative, uh, groundbreaking, one might say. Yeah. Influential. I definitely also see why so many musicians are like, oh, no, this is a groundbreaking album. This is very influential. Because it is. And it's because, produced very oh, well. Yeah. It's sound or engineered. It's engineered really, really well. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice choice. It's a it's a good uh, add to the to our catalog there. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't pick a, a loser of an album. Dud. But Dud. if uh, you'd like to tell us what you think about uh, Talking Heads or yeah. any other band for that matter, you can get a hold of us on our social media. Uh, stuff uh, at facebook.com forward slash audio judo. <laughs> wow. No? At facebook.com. Oh, is it not? I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, it's, oh, it's at, at audio judo on Twitter, at audio underscore judo on Instagram, and uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo. It was just, you could technically say, I had a late night. I don't. Facebook.com forward slash I knew I was going to screw something like weird. that. Or you could get a hold of us uh, at info at audio judo.com. Yes, that's probably the quickest and easiest and dirtiest way to get a hold of us. Right. Uh, dirtiest. The dirtiest way to get a hold probably. of us. Also, quick shout out to our patrons. Uh, shout out out loud to your Simon C, our UK consultant. Thank you so much. Front row seats to your Michael A, uh, Aaron P, and Darlene W. Thank you so much. You help us buy some beer. Uh, backstage pass to your Michael S, Christian S, David W, and Scott K. You guys are the ones who help us buy some equipment so we can keep recording. Yeah. So thank you all so much. We appreciate your support. Uh, thank you, everybody else out there, for listening. All right. Go uh, listen to Throughline. Go listen yes. to Audio Judo Does Jazz. Go find our link for the Maya Wynn concert. Which Epis- I will definitely add. We have episodes coming out about Marvin Gaye, our holiday episode, our top 10 episode, Steve Ray Vaughn, as we cruise towards our 100th episode. Yeah, we're getting there. And that's it for now. So we will see you again in about two weeks. Until then, bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.